Welcome. This is the Do Good Better podcast with Trina Isaacson. On today's episode, I rant and rave about nonprofit conferences. I speak with Dara Parker about gender equity within the nonprofit sector, especially within our organizations. And I give some advice to a new university graduate about whether to work in the nonprofit sector or whether to wait until later and worry about financial stability in the short term. Well, here we go. Here's some funky music to bring us in. I want to start off by apologizing for the sound editing quality. This is my very first time putting together a multi-track audio podcast, so please bear with me as I learn the ropes. If you're an expert and you have any suggestions on websites that I should check out for sound editing um, quality, I would greatly appreciate it. Always open to learning. Anyways, enjoy the show. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of attending ANSWER, which stands for the Association of Nonprofit and Social Economy Research Conference. It's a Canadian association of mostly academic researchers from a variety of of universities across Canada, but there's definitely some folks from the U.S. and other countries that come up, and a lot of practitioners come as well, people like myself who are independent, some people who work within the nonprofit sector, you know, folks from Volunteer Canada or Imagine Canada, which are two main uh, nonprofit institutions within Canada, umbrella organizations. And uh, I had a fantastic time. I've got to say this is my favorite conference that I go to. And I go to this conference annually, almost, almost annually. What I find is that when I go to practitioner conferences, conferences that are meant to be a series of small kind of workshops or presentations on topics relevant to practitioners, I actually get really bored. And I think the main reason is because I read a lot. I read a lot of blogs. uh, I read a lot of books. And so I'm generally up to date on techniques and tactics that nonprofit organizations can use in their communications and volunteer engagement and fundraising, etc. And so when I go to these practitioner conferences, I'm not inspired, I don't learn anything new. And, and I don't really enjoy myself. So when I go to answer uh, this research conference, I get my mind blown in a lot of little ways, because the topics that are talked about are much more theoretical. Now, I know not everyone is super into theory and big ideas, but this is where I totally nerd out. So going to this conference, I learn about some interesting research. A few examples of some of the things that are researched include the trends in volunteers replacing paid employees and paid employees replacing volunteers. And what are some of the organizational or volunteer Uh, factors that might indicate an organization is more likely to replace volunteers with employees and vice versa. Another uh, research paper that was presented looked at what, again, are organizational characteristics that might indicate whether or not an organization is more likely or less likely to implement socially innovative programs or practices. And the results actually really surprised me because it wasn't necessarily about young and new leaders uh, leading the way. So I found that really interesting. Um, So there are findings like that that do have practical application to the nonprofit sector and social innovators in the here and now. But then there's also just some really interesting thought pieces around you know, the financialization of social innovation in the nonprofit sector through social finance and, and how we are kind of making 
um, nonprofit programs and vulnerable populations into asset classes and commodities. That was very interesting. Um, the idea of bricolage, the idea that in the nonprofit sector, we are often tinkerers. We do as much as we can with the few assets that we have and come up with innovative and effective things without a lot of resources. So bricolage is all about tinkering and, and playing around with what you have at hand. So again, there are pieces at the conference that were definitely just thought pieces, were interesting triggers for me to reflect on, and I love reflecting. I'm such an introvert. I love thinking about new ideas. And, and so I enjoyed that, but there are also a lot of pieces that have practical application for the nonprofit sector leaders and social innovators who are on the ground doing interesting work. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of connection between academia and practice, and I think that's true in a lot of fields. And although there are many practitioners that go to answer, I think the average nonprofit professional or social innovator doing their thing is not necessarily aware of some of the advancements and interesting research that's being done at the academic level. And so um, hopefully I, I'd like to find a way in the near future to play a bit of that mediator role because when I hear the, the research that's being presented, I often think, oh, this would be really important for grant makers to know, or this would be really important for program coordinators to know, or this would be really important for uh, corporate funders to know. And, and I think that there are some clear takeaways from academic research that has relevance in the nonprofit sector and social innovation. So I look forward to exploring that a little bit more, but just generally, if you're someone who likes nerding out over ideas and interesting findings that that don't necessarily look like they have direct application to practice, but that do when you dig in a little bit more, I highly recommend you go to an academic conference. In Canada, the conference is ANSER, A-N-S-E-R. In the States, that conference is ARNOVA, A-R-N-O-V-A. Uh, if you're a listener from outside of North America or outside of the U.S. and Canada and know of other conferences that uh, I should share with listeners, let me know. I'm curious what you think about conferences. Do you go to conferences? What do you get out of them? What's your purpose for attending? I know that when I go to answer, my goal is definitely to learn, but my goal is also to build and maintain relationships that I have with people within academia and within practice, uh, just smart people who I like to stay connected to, whether for personal interest, because they're smart people and I like having conversations with smart people, or for business purposes, um, it's great to know what kind of research is being done, what the research needs are in the sector, so I can fill a need as it comes up. So again, yeah, tell me, what do you go to conferences for? What do you get out of them? Do you prefer larger conferences that happen in convention centers that cost a couple hundred dollars? Do you prefer smaller unconferences or smaller workshops that might take place at a much smaller scale? What do you do? What do you go to? How do you learn? Um, and our conference is the thing or not for you. Anyways, coming up soon on this podcast, I have a conversation with Dara Parker about gender inequity or equity within the nonprofit sector, especially within our organizations. And then I give some advice to a listener who is a new university graduate and who wants to know, should he start working in the nonprofit sector, doing social good, or should he wait until maybe later in life and start off his career in the private sector instead to ensure some financial stability? 
If you would like to submit a question, the instructions are at trinaisaacson.com forward slash podcast. That's trinaisaacson.com forward slash podcast. Uh, in the inaugural episode last week, I mentioned that I would be giving $100 away to the person who submitted the ninth question. And I'm not quite there yet. I'm very close, but not quite there yet. So if you have a question that you would like me to answer, frankly, on the podcast, please submit a question at, again, trinaisaacson.com forward slash podcast. Before we dig into the interview with Dara Parker, I wanted to just highlight a word that she uses that might not be familiar to all listeners. She uses the word cis to describe herself. Cis is the opposite of trans. So it's all about the biological sex that you were born with and the gender that you identify with. If the body that you were born in and the gender that you identify with are the same, you are considered cis. And if the body that you were born in doesn't match with the gender you identify with, then you would be considered trans, as in a transgender person. That's it for the preamble. Enjoy! So, gender, hey? Yeah, I feel like I have a lot of things to say about gender. Well, maybe to start off with, if you could just state uh, your name and who you are or what you do. My name is Dara Parker, and I'm the executive director of Q-Munity, which is BC's Queer Resource Center, and we exist to improve queer lives. So you, uh, you mentioned you think that you have a lot to talk about when it comes to gender. I'm actually curious, where does your passion for gender issues and gender equity stem from? I can't pinpoint it because I've thought about it a lot, but for as long as I can remember, I've been driven by social justice issues and inequity from as far back as I can remember. I can uh, come up with experiences of being treated differently, unfairly, or uh, unequally because of my gender, and I think that's what started a lifelong commitment towards feminism and gender justice. Hmm. Are any of those experiences specific to your time working within the nonprofit sector and on social impact and social issues? Definitely. Although, you know, my earliest experiences of it were being, you know, a little girl. And so that's what I was thinking of when I shared that. But now in my everyday life, absolutely. I, I don't think there's an arena where I exist where I don't experience my gender at the front and center of interactions and power dynamics. Uh, and so, of course, that includes the sector where I work. I'm, I'm curious about what that experience is in the moment for you when you talk about gender being front and center. Sure. Let me come up with a tangible example. One would be how I present in terms of my femininity. And there's lots of layers to this. And it gets even more interesting when you work in a queer organization where people often conflate sexual orientation with gender identity. And our organization exists to talk about both of those issues and support people who have non-normative sexual orientations and gender identities. So in the queer community, I'm often read as a femme woman because I present more um, feminine of center in terms of my clothing, my hairstyle, my voice, my mannerisms, etc. Sometimes that works in my favor, I think, in that I'm a very non-threatening queer woman to mainstream society because I conform in many ways to gender expectations around dress and voice and so on. And so that that is less threatening than a masculine presenting woman with short hair and, you know, facial hair and 
deeper voice and a quote unquote manly walk, that kind of thing. So that's one of the ways it's front and center. But I often find like it will take me so far and then that femininity undercuts my potential authority or credibility in certain situations. Uh, for example, the chair of our board is a lesbian cis woman who presents more masculine of center. And we went into a high level donor meeting together and the donor only looked at my board chair when, when addressing both of us, but really only talking to her. And it was so interesting because this is not an uncommon experience, I think, for professional women to be meetings where you're either spoken over or you're just ignored or, and so this happens uh, not infrequently for me, but it was interesting because we were both women across from a a man. I should have specified that the donor was a man. Uh, So there was a gender dynamic at play and I'm sitting there observing it and, and it was frustrating. It was a frustrating experience because I'd actually set up the meeting and he and I had communicated previously and he didn't know the board chair. And so after the meeting, I checked in with a board chair to say, like, did you experience that the same way I did? And she said, oh, absolutely. Like, he didn't look at you or address you the entire time. And I said, yeah, I think it's a gender thing. And, you know, her, she was like, but we're both women. And I'm like, "Mm, but you present differently. And she has a very strong presence, but reads more masculine of center. And as soon as I said it, she realized that that was true in that moment and that he'd been treating her like, uh, quote unquote man. And then I had to spend all this time in my head thinking about my outfit that day because I was wearing something that was particularly feminine. It was like a very summery feminine dress. Uh, whereas I don't always wear that. Sometimes I might wear a suit or I might wear, you know, a button shirt or something that would be less feminine. And and so I had this whole analysis going on. And just the fact that I was in this thinking, did I dress in too girly clothing? Did that undermine my credibility? Did it, you know, negate my authority? And so it was a funny space to to occupy thinking about how sometimes that femininity advances my cause and then sometimes it works against me. I feel like it's so fucked that we have to think about this kind of stuff. Do you though? Or am I a lo- you know what, I would say no, but in the work that I do, even when I don't interact with donors so much, but I do interact with fairly senior people, say within government or in the nonprofit sector, but a lot of them are women. And so I don't interact with a lot of, like I'm thinking male donors would often be coming from the private sector. And that's a cohort that I'm generally not interacting with. And so I don't get that power dynamic, gender dynamic thing happen. So it doesn't come front and center for me in most of my interactions. It definitely does every once in a while, like a recent experience that I had working with some people for the first time and a bunch of people went out for drinks after work. It was my very first day with this group. And so I'm I'm meeting people, I'm trying to get to know people. And uh, one of the guys that I was sitting beside kept looking at my breasts. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I can't believe this is happening. Like, dude, what? Like, do you not realize that every five seconds your eyes are flitting down to my chest? Like, what's going on? And because I don't, like, I work from home alone. I'm not in a workplace very often where I'm interacting with people generally, but men especially. And so... Every once in a while when that happens, I'm like, uh, I'm kind of like, what just happened? And and then afterwards, I'm just like, when is it worth saying something? And when do you just go like, chalk it up to like, oh, another day in the office as a woman, that's just going to happen. So I don't know. I come across it so rarely that I 
that when it does happen, it's weird, but it's rare. I don't know. Do you call people out on that kind of stuff? That's really contextual. I certainly didn't in that meeting. I experience it more with certain stakeholder groups than others. So for example, community is embarking on building a $10 million real estate project to build a new facility for the organization. And the development community is dominated by men. And I've experienced it much more there than I do in my day-to-day nonprofit life. If I look internally to you know staff and board, some of my day-to-day stakeholders, I experience it a lot less or it's more subtle. So another way that it shows up, and I'm fairly confident about this, and maybe it's exacerbated by the fact that it's the nonprofit sector, which one is dominated by women, and two is it's driven by doing good. And so it tends to, in my estimation, attract a lot of folks who I would, you know, <laughs> I would ballpark as social worker types. Nurturing, perhaps. Yeah, nurturing, good-hearted, like caregivers, um, like community folks, all great qualities. Uh, But I I see that we disproportionately attract that uh, type of personality. And so, you know, I I think we need all kinds of personalities to make a strong organization. And all this to say that I, I don't fit into that social worker personality. And therefore, I can see, I would identify as showing up much more in traditional male characteristics. So kind of your traditional North American archetype leader that, you know, confident communicator and strong presence and, and those types of things. And, you know, the research says pretty conclusively that then when those uh, quote unquote leadership qualities show up in a man, they're applauded when they show up in a woman, then that woman is often written off as difficult, bitchy, Um, she's egotistical, she's harsh, like those kinds of things that I experience in my regular life. But that's more subtle uh, because it's not someone staring at my breast, but it's how I'm interpreted when I'm making leadership decisions or how I'm communicating with my staff team or my board team that is atypical to the sector and atypical to women. So when it comes to working in an organization like yours or in a sector, we're doing our work in the name of social justice, but you know there are many ways in which within our sector, we're not living by the principles of social justice within our organizations. And so I guess it's a little bit different when you're talking about external donors and dealing with people that aren't within the sector, but what are some, some examples of situations you come across where things are happening within the nonprofit sector and we're just not, we're not being equitable or just when it comes to gender? Well, the most obvious is that the sector is dominated by women and it's also a sector that, in my opinion, is undervalued and therefore underpaid. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's women who take on this undervalued, underpaid work. However, the exception is when you look at larger nonprofits, you know, well, well-funded, resourced organizations, it's men who uh, have the majority of leadership roles in the larger nonprofit organizations. And so I think that's one of the ways the sector is replicating gender injustice And the wage gap exists within the sector across the board, that women are consistently making less than men in the same positions. So you mentioned the wage gap issues and leadership inequity. 
what about when organizations are doing gender equity or gender justice well? Like, what sort of conversations do you think that they're having internally that would lead to a more just organization from an internal standpoint? So when I answer that question with my community hat on, I would urge folks to look at gender beyond the binary. I'm not sure how many organizations are even starting to have that conversation. Typically, when I'm having conversations about gender in organizations, people are talking about uh, a binary gender balance and usually women's workforce and the uh, workforce participation. So that would be my starting point is I think a whole piece of the conversation is missing, looking at gender as more of a spectrum and not a binary. Um, and I think that's a that's a steep learning curve for all of us. I can share that at Community, and we're celebrating our 36th anniversary this year. So it's, you know, it's a... It's been around for a few years, and there's been a number of evolutions in terms of our own makeup. On the board, uh, we went from having no gendered positions to uh, creating bylaws that require gender balance, but on a binary basis. So I think, you know, we had co-chairs, and half the members had to be women and half had to be men. And then, of course, we quickly realized that that's not going to work for this organization at all. And this is before my time. And so there were iterations of the Constitution where we had some female designated spots, some male designated spots, and a trans designated spot. And then that was also problematic in how it was structured. And interestingly, we've come full circle where there are no um, specified designations around gender, but we actively work to have gender diversity on our board to represent the communities that we're serving. An interesting place to start is to go beyond the binary when looking at gender in your organization. So it's kind of about looking at a situation and like naming the current situation, like who's in the room, who's not in the room, and how do we actively recruit or how do we create a more inclusive space? Like, do you guys do, I mean, I know in our conversation last night, uh, and actually, I just said you guys, and I hate that phrase. <laughs> I'm re retracting it. Um, you folks, you mentioned that, you know, within your organization, I would suspect both the staff and board level, uh, gender diversity is is pretty good. And at the board level, it sounds intentional. Is it something that you're also intentional about at the staff level? Absolutely intentional. And I also want to add the the disclaimer that diversity is hard. As a professional, you know, diversity expert whose organization exists to support uh, and celebrate diversity, it's a lot harder than I thought. Gender is one of the ways that, you know, we try to diversify our organizations and there are many others and, you know, community does well in some. I think we do better on gender than a lot of folks. We don't do so, so well on uh, other types of diversity and and I think you're exactly right in terms of you have to start by naming it. So you have to start by looking internally and saying, okay, who's here? Uh, who's in the room? Who's missing? Why are we missing those folks? And then being very intentional about uh, how you mainstream diversity throughout your organization. So when I came into the organization three years ago uh, and I identify as a, a white, cis, queer woman, I looked around and said, wow, this organization is really white. And we are based in Vancouver, one of the most multicultural cities in the world. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, And so in my mind, and this is like some of the naivety around, I think, leadership and 
and also theory versus practice, uh, I, in my mind, I said, okay, well, I'll fix that in like the next six months or so, you know, once I start doing some hiring and some recruiting and so on. And three years later, I have not fixed that. Uh, and that is not for lack of intention. Uh, and I think we've had some success, definitely, but it's there's no silver bullet. So certainly naming it and, and continuing to name it and own it and uh, account for that. It's a weakness that we should have to uh, account for. And then, you know, we we took a we've spent a lot of time investing in our hiring processes to not only get the best candidates, but to ensure that we have diverse representation within our team. And that's happened at both the staff and the board level, different kinds of processes to recruit staff and board members. Um, but we've we've um, written it out. It's actually published in our strategic plan as, you know, one of the objectives is to diversify uh, in terms of our recruitment. And then we've actively sought to build partnerships with other organizations that we think could help uh, funnel the right kinds of folks our way. What are some culture practices, policies that would support a, a just organization as it relates to gender internally? Uh, because I'm at a queer and trans organization, one of the first ways we can support gender justice is through gender neutral washrooms in terms of the physical infrastructure. You also want to look at policies. So of course you'd be wanting to look at flexible work policies and and you'd be wanting to look at parental leaves and uh, whether or not your nonprofit has a policy around that. I know a lot of small nonprofits like ours tend to skip over pieces like that you know, until it comes up and then people are scrambling to sort of determine how you're going to tackle that. And I think, uh, like all culture shifting, it's a lot of subtle nuance as well. Uh, I'd certainly do a review of the organization to see how many folks in leadership identify as women, um, identify as trans folk who are not as well represented in leadership roles in organizations. Uh, I would do a salary survey to see if there are any discrepancies, uh, if there are any trends going on in your organization. Because, of course, none of us are in a vacuum. So, uh, you know, I identify as a, a strong feminist who's, who believes gender justice is at the core of everything I do, and yet I can also carry those biases and unconsciously implement those biases within the organization. And so having those practices in place, I know our equivalent in San Francisco, so the LGBTQ Center in San Francisco, they do an annual review of all their staff and do just this. They look at how many women are um, senior positions, what are their salaries, uh, what are the job descriptions, What uh, and they do the same for all the diversity metrics that they prioritize, so around people of color, around language groups, things like that. So you mentioned you have might have to check your, some of the own biases, um, the implicit biases that you might carry. When have you caught yourself doing something that you may not have wanted to do? Well, I worked the word guys out of my vocabulary since being at community, which was difficult. I mean, I think the way we show up in language can unconsciously reinforce gender norms and uh, gender injustice. So language is one way to start. I, I, it, I'm using that one because uh, you mentioned it in this interview and it's really hard. I, I used to say when I was younger that I degendered the word, but apparently I can't do that unilaterally. So, <laughs> you know, I've had to work at, um, and, and, you know, it was my staff kind of calling me on it and, and being very progressive in terms of language. And so th there's one small example of, of how to 
do that. But another way, there's been some articles floating around about how women often fare more poorly in performance reviews on uh, specific like personality traits. So I've been reading those articles and then that made me look at my performance reviews. And I think I was guilty of that. And like at least one instance I can think of how I was saying, well, it's something about your attitude and you're just not, um, you're just not a good fit with the team. And I forget the specific characteristic that they had pointed to, but I, I had to, you know, check my own, my own performance reviews that I do with staff and think, you know, maybe I'm doing this. Like I, again, I don't, grow up in a vacuum. And so unfortunately, I'm also subject to gender stereotypes. I This is outside the workplace, but I, I was at a, a party a few months ago where I got introduced to someone. I think I remember the story and I love it, but it keeps going on. <laughs> oh, I hate it. It's so embarrassing. You know, I started this uh, interview by saying that gender is at the front and center of everything I do. And I consider myself you know, hyper-conscious of, of gender inclusivity and so on. So anyways, that is the foundation. I was at this party. I got introduced to a woman who had been to a community event, one of our fundraisers. And so, uh, and then she, I said, oh, you should come to our next one. It's coming up. So essentially I was trying to sell her a ticket at this party. And she said, oh yeah, I'll have to think about it. Like, I don't know what my schedule is. I work ship work. And then that ended the conversation and I ran into her half an hour later and introduced her to the person beside me. And I said, oh, Karen's a nurse. And she was like, no, I'm not. I'm a doctor. <laughs> and so I made this gender assumption based on the fact that she said she did shift work at a hospital more specifically. And so I could have just like kicked myself. I mean, I, I can't believe I did that, but uh, I did, right? Because I still think that like women are nurses and men are doctors. So, you know, I think we also have to give ourselves some latitude not to continue making those mistakes, but to acknowledge that we will make mistakes. We don't live in a vacuum and then to own them and, and you know, use that information to be better. I love that story in the sense that it's funny and I know how, how much of a feminist and a self-aware feminist you are. So um, I don't know why I take glee in that story, but it's just funny. It's just funny. <laughs> it was hilarious and horrible. I just like... I mean, I was beating myself up for the rest of the night and my partner was just laughing beside me because she knew Karen was a doctor and she walked me sort of like, she watched me walk into that. And so she just thought it was hilarious. Oh dear. <laughs> now, when we were chatting last night, we had a lot of comments about uh, women salary inequity within the nonprofit sector and generally around women and uh, choices around careers and how you know the impact that that might make on women's salary and career progress I'm, I'm wondering when it comes to what gets you most riled up about salary and women's career progress like where do you feel that there are the strongest injustices when it comes to gender within the nonprofit sector like what gets you pissed off to carry on from what we were just talking about, it's the internalized devaluing. I can't tell you how many times I talk to younger women in the sector who, and not just women, men do it too, but I think it's even more problematic when women do this. When they tell me like, oh, you know, the money doesn't matter. I'm here because of this important cause and because I care. And so money is not important to me. And I just want to shake them a little bit and say, I get that you're here because you're passionate. I'm here because I'm passionate and because we want to see change in the world. But also you have to pay rent and you have to buy food and you need to be able to like take your partner out on a date and all these like little things that 
provide quality of life. And I, I don't see men doing it nearly as much and especially not outside the nonprofit sector. And so I think it's, I talk about these cultural myths that are embedded within our sector and probably other sectors as well. And I think that's one of them is that we all buy into this idea that we're here not because of the money. And uh, it's a, a call to action from me to everyone to stop buying into this idea that because we're doing work that we're passionate about, that social change focus, that we don't need to be adequately compensated for it because you love your job and it does good for the world doesn't mean it you should not get paid for it. I, I feel that's really strange. I feel like you should get paid better. Like why is it more important to produce shoelaces for Nike than it is to like empower queer youth to not take their own lives? I just, I don't understand. It's like, oh, I make violent video games or sell like cigarettes to children. I deserve to make a shit ton of money. Like so strange. Have you read Dan Pilata's Uncharitable? The way we think about charity is dead wrong or? So Uncharitable is about how we tie our hands as the nonprofit sector by not using tools that are available to business. So things like compensating fairly, not investing in research and development, uh, not investing in marketing, those sorts of things. I have watched his TED talk, which is called The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong, and it's the same principles. I have not read the book. The TED talk is brilliant, and I make all my new board members watch it. In a previous conversation that we had, I know that you mentioned your observation between men and women who are in the hiring process with you and how they might negotiate for salary or not. What sort of observations do you see among men and women that are applying to work with you? The same thing. Pretty consistently across gender lines, I see an internalized devaluing and therefore not very strong negotiation in salary. And so just for the younger or maybe not so young people who are applying for work and because they believe in the organization and the organizations don't have a lot of money, they don't want to negotiate for salary. They don't feel like it's their place. What would you say to those people? Well, there's how I want the world to be, and then there's how it is. And so I made a lot of grand statements about how we need to value ourselves more. The reality is there are a lot of small nonprofits that can't afford to go beyond certain salary levels. But as an, an executive director who hires people, I would much rather have an honest conversation with a prospective hire and uh, I would be impressed by someone who made a solid argument as to why they should make a certain amount of money. Uh, I may not be able to meet their request because of my structural limitations, but if they came in, researched, you know, and prepared and made an argument, I think it would potentially increase their salary and uh, at a minimum increase their – it would – um, ensure that they were held in high esteem by me because it's also an indication to me that you'll know how to negotiate other things and value our work. You know, somebody who's coming in who says, Oh no, no, no. I, you know, I just, uh, I'm doing it because money doesn't matter and we just need to make it better. Well, I'm concerned that they're going to devalue our, you know, our fee for service program called pride speaks or queer competency trainings where we go into schools and, uh, you know, charge an amount to deliver workshops. And so that negotiation skill, I think, is critical for a, not every role at community, but a lot of roles, for sure. Hmm. 
Um, you've mentioned funders a couple of times and donors a couple of times in our conversation. Do you, or what sort of role do you think that funders and donors have in the gender justice, gender equity goals that you have for the, for yourself in the sector? I think there's more potential. So certainly when I look to our friends in the South and by that, I mean, USAINs, they have a lot of foundations that require, you know, certain board composition or gender equity or sometimes racial equity, those kinds of things before they'll provide grants. Um, I'm not sure how well they do that, but I, I certainly would be interested to explore ways that uh, we could encourage organizations to tackle these issues and definitely funders and donors should be putting resources into making that happen because it does take resources to do anything well, to execute on any kind of strategy takes resources. And so I would love to see more resources made available to do that work. So I I should emphasize, I started with saying, oh, they should impose like requirements on nonprofits. If they do that without providing the resources, then that's just punitive. But if they do that in uh, tandem with providing resources to make it happen, that's fabulous. I know with often within the federal government, there are requirements for gender lens, a gender lens to be considered. If there's any gender related impact of a project, does that come into play at all in anything that you have sought funding for within Canada? No. I mean, often grantors ask for the board composition, but they're not, I don't ever remember answering specifically about gender composition. So I don't think so. Obviously, you know your own organization very well. Are there other organizations that you could point to that you think have been doing some interesting or really great things around gender equity and justice? Internally, externally, I mean, internally, 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 I don't know is the answer. I mean, the organizations that come to mind are the feminist or women's focus organizations. Um, So no is my short answer, but I don't doubt that many are, I, you know, I think that there's lots of great organizations that don't have the resources to execute on what they have the capacity to do or the potential to do is what I want to say. And I also, I think it's hard, right? I know I've said this a few times, but we don't live in a vacuum. And so I go back to my example around diversifying the organization in terms of people of color. I I thought I could fix that and it wasn't as easy as I thought. So I think it takes time. It takes deliberate intention um, and, and multiple strategies to get there. And it also involves being uncomfortable, making mistakes. It's not a smooth process. If it was like, just like all of the social issues around the world, we would solve them, but they're not. They're, they're uncomfortable, especially when you're coming from a place of privilege based on gender or ethnic background or language ability or citizenship status or what have you. So, yeah, it can be uncomfortable. And that's just part of the, part of the existence of being a, an aware person I suppose I think so yeah so embracing the discomfort um because I think you're you're bang on the it is uncomfortable it's uncomfortable for me to look around three years later and say we're still pretty white (laughs) we're not as white but like yeah we're pretty white and I've tried so uh, you know it's uh checking your own biases like when I talked about the work we've invested in recruitment processes I realized that 
it is a lot more comfortable to hire people who come from the same cultural framework as myself or who, you know, essentially look more like me, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. But so, yes, being um, <laughs> tossing the ego aside is uh, uh, constantly necessary to try and advance some of these goals. Um, any, you know, before we go, is there anything that you had thought about sharing, but hasn't come up in the conversation yet? Anything that you have been riled up about that you want to share? So we've touched on this, but I'll just share a story from a conference I was at last year in Vancouver, where gender equity in nonprofits came up. And it was a group of nonprofit people sitting in the room. Somebody suggested that we really needed to work on getting more men into the sector because men are underrepresented. And there was kind of an immediate chorus of, yes, 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 that's, that's a great idea. And I sat there a little bit stunned because, <laughs> full disclosure, that is not an immediate priority for me in the sector. To me, it seems really clear that if we paid people better, then there would be more men in this sector. And so for me, the real issue to tackle is why are we undervaluing the sector and why are we undervaluing women's work? Because as I noted at the beginning of our conversation, when this work is better resourced, when it is valued, there's lots of men that come to the table. So it was a, it was a bit of a frustrating moment because I, of course, I'm, I'm not shy. So I did raise <laughs> my hand in the room and say, you know, uh, the reality is and the research demonstrates that when, when positions are resourced and in terms of executive leadership at larger organizations – it's dominated by men. It's not just equitable. It's, it's actually inequitable when you look at the feeder pools, right? Uh, and then it created a bit of chaos in the room where, where people, you know what they did? The classic conversation around diversity. Essentially, three people raised their hands and said, oh, no, I have half, uh, half men on my board. And, oh, no, like my, my ED is a, C, like, uh, is a woman. And, and then, you know, one more example of a woman in leadership. And I just went, wow, this really touched a nerve where people really needed to defend that women had some power in the sector. When when you look at it from a bird's eye view, it's it's pretty clear that... It's like, I have a gay friend or I have a black friend argument. You that's throw out exactly the anecdotes. what it was. Yeah, I yeah. know a gay person. I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> Just because that gay person is out and happy. Like, that is not representative of what's happening in the sector. And so... Again, I, yeah, I, I'm not so interested in a conversation about how we get more men in the sector, although I would love that outcome. What I'm interested in is how do we value this sector uh, and attract a diverse group of people, therefore. Thank you so much, Dara, for having the conversation with me. Really appreciate it. Next up, listener question. I am a new grad from UBC Sociology, and I'm deciding whether I should start my career off in the nonprofit sector. My goal is to achieve financial independence as soon as possible while simultaneously still making a positive impact by helping society. I have heard it's easier to transition from for-profit or corporate to non-profit rather than the other way around. What are your thoughts? Great question, and it's actually a pretty common one that I get from new graduates. I teach a couple university courses and often have younger people getting in touch with me because they're trying to figure out how they can get a job that pays their bills, that does good work, and it's not easy. So the first thing that I want to address in your question is that doing good and earning a living and being financially independent, those are not two mutually exclusive things. It is possible to do social good work and be financially independent. One way that you can do that, first of all, some nonprofit jobs 
do pay shitty. I will definitely acknowledge that. But within the nonprofit sector, there are some that pay very fair wages. And I know that the first job that I ever got in the nonprofit sector was quite a salary bump from leaving teaching. Teaching, well, pays pretty crap when you begin. So understand that there is a pay differential within the nonprofit sector, and there are actually well-paying nonprofit organizations. Um, the second is that the nonprofit sector does not have a monopoly on social impact jobs. So there are some, um, you know, corporations that have either foundations that give to the charitable sector or that have corporate social responsibility or employee engagement work that is done internally. And so there are social impact aspects to uh, corporations. And then there are corporations that have doing good embedded into their business model. So there definitely are jobs within the corporate sector. And then there are other types of institutions that do good that we don't necessarily traditionally think about when we our first thought on social impact. We don't go there, but things like um, government, the public service, universities, hospitals, uh, foundations, these often pay uh, at a higher rate than nonprofit organizations do, but also give you the ability to give back. Uh, the second piece of advice that I have for you is that your first job leaving university is not as crucial to your life as you think. It does not define you for the rest of your life. If you talk to people who have been working for 20 years and ask them if their first job out of school relates to the job that they have now, a vast majority of people will say no. My first job out of university was a high school teacher, and although that that job definitely impacted the rest of my life and and the choices that I made and the knowledge that I have uh, definitely is not directly related to the research and consulting work that I do now. So uh, don't put too much weight on your very first job. Um, to, to address your comment, your question around switching between sectors, I would agree with you in what you heard in that it can be more difficult to switch from the nonprofit sector to the corporate sector rather than vice versa. I think the main reason, though, is because within the nonprofit sector, a lot of people have roles that are very general. We have a lot of generalist people that are good at doing a lot of different things because there is enough money to pay three different people to do three different pieces of work. Instead, you need one person who's able to do all three things. So when you have a generalist role, you don't necessarily have a really, really deep area of expertise. And so it's tougher to switch to organizations that can afford to employ more people and therefore have people in more specialist roles. So that can be uh, a difficulty in switching. I would also say that switching back and forth between different sectors is actually easier earlier in your career. There isn't as much uh, weight paid to your experience in a specific sector. So um, if you want to switch and, and play around and explore different sectors, it's much easier to do so earlier in your career. Uh, I also want you to think about the idea that you can do good beyond your job. So even if you have a job that you don't feel makes the social impact that you would like, there are areas in your life where you can, whether through your volunteer work, perhaps in your uh, in your job, in, your, in the company that you're working for, they have some sort of workplace program where they work with charities or donate to charities. Um, you can be on a board of directors. There are a lot of different ways that you can be involved in doing social good, not in your job. So consider that. And the other thing that I want you to consider, especially when you're just leaving university and you want to be financially independent, is there is no shame in paying your bills. 
Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on young people to live their purpose and live their passion. And sometimes you just got to pay your bills. There are a lot of young people that are doing really interesting things, and it's hard to tell how they're paying their bills. They're likely either supported by parents or they have other jobs they just don't talk about. So don't feel that there are tons of young people doing cool things and paying their bills, doing those cool social impact things. Understand that things are a bit more complex and there's no shame in getting a job that pays your bills early after graduating. It's difficult enough to find any job, let alone a job that meets all your criteria. So so there's no shame in paying your bills. Get a job that suits your broad interests that uses your skills and experiences and even if it takes you in a direction that you hadn't necessarily considered before uh, jump at it learn something new uh, get out of it what you can and then you have a little bit of time to make your next jump so again no shame in paying your bills Um, my final piece of advice for you is just to consider and it's actually kind of the opposite to my last piece of advice is that is that life is both too short and too long to hate your work. So whatever job you do get into, if you are loathing it, if you feel that um, there's just not an alignment with who you are as a person, perhaps the company doesn't act as ethically as you would prefer, uh, make a plan to move on. Don't necessarily quit and burn bridges, but make a plan to move on because life is too short and too long to hate your work. So if I were to make my, make my advice more succinct and really summarize what I want to share with you, uh, one, find a job, find any job. There's no shame in paying your bills and getting on your way to financial independence. Uh, the second is to consider beyond the nonprofit sector when looking at social good work or social impact work. There are jobs within the corporate sector, within uh, universities and government that do good things. So broaden your search um, and also consider that Uh, In order to get into the good work that corporations do, oftentimes you need to move up the ranks to get into those jobs. And so your first job might not be the job that you want, but it will help you get there. So for example, if there's some really interesting work being done at a higher level within a bank, often an inroad to getting that job would be starting out as a teller, which is totally possible to do without a finance or commerce degree and um, in making your way up. So understand that there are multiple paths to getting into good work. So uh, get out there and I'd love to hear an update in a couple months from now or a year from now to see where you've gone. Thank you so much for listening to the Do Good Better podcast. If you have a suggested topic or interview subject or a question that you would like to submit to be answered on the podcast, go to trinaisaacson.com forward slash podcast for specific instructions. I'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please do send them my way. Thanks for listening and have a great week.